Welcome to the Pregnancy Help Podcast. I'm Christine Grimmett, and this is the first in a two-part series that we'll be doing surrounding the topic of prenatal diagnosis. And we'll talk about the challenges that parents face when their unborn child is facing a diagnosis and some of the resources that are available to parents and to those who walk that journey alongside those parents. And there's one resource in particular that each of our guests has had a part in creating that I'm especially excited to talk about a little bit later. But first, let me bring in Petra Wallenmeyer, who is such a wealth of knowledge on a variety of topics. She's been on our podcast a couple of times just in the past year or so. Um, and her role here at Heartbeat International is the Administrative Supervisor for Option Line. And we love to talk about Option Line on the podcast because we want to spread the word that pregnancy help is available 24-7 through chat, text, email, and of course, phone. An option line can even take calls for pregnancy centers after their doors have closed for the day. To find out more, contact info at optionline.org. And to see the help that's available online, visit optionline.org. So Petra, it's always so good to have you on. Welcome. And you've been with Option Line now for more than a few years. It's been several yeah. years, I believe. So yes. give us uh, just a, a brief intro of yourself, your background, and then we'll invite our other two guests to introduce themselves as well. Thanks so much, Christine. Um, so a little bit of my background and um, my role at Option Line. I uh, came to Columbus and went to the Ohio State University for graduate school and got my master's in chemistry there. And um, But at the time, I was really looking for some pro-life work and found Heartbeat International and Option Line and worked um, as a consultant first, uh, that was in the summer of 2018, and by December 2019, I um, applied for an open uh, supervisor position. So um, what I do now is a lot of um, training of our consultants and um, also communicating with uh, pregnancy help organizations who are wanting to learn more about Option Line and um, how we can partner together. That's great. Thank you. It's it's good to have you here um, tackling so many different topics behind the scenes. And we'll get more into some of your work uh, with the prenatal diagnosis topic and the, the resource that we have available. Um, so let's bring in our other two guests. We have Gary and Diane. Uh, Diane, do you want to start and introduce yourself a little bit, some of your background? Sure. Thank you, Christine. My name is uh, Diane Eckert. I am a nurse and I worked for over 20 years in pediatrics and neonatal ICU. Uh, and I currently teach nursing and I have a, a PhD in bioethics and for prenatal diagnosis and care of the pediatric patient and life issues in general are my passion. And it's a pleasure to be here with all of you. Thanks. And uh, Gary, tell us a little bit about yourself, and then Petra, we'll jump right into our discussion. Sure. So um, I've been a, a, a joined the board of directors for Heartbeat uh, 10 years ago and been very active uh, in serving Heartbeat for many years. Um, and about five years ago, I started getting interested in this type of, of prenatal diagnosis, uh, really through um, people I know, my you know, personal friends, and uh, several of them have had children with special needs of various sorts, but also started becoming more aware of kind of the the challenges that some of them had, uh, you know, going through pregnancy with, you know, just, you know, with the system around them uh, and the support uh, around them and the challenges with that. And so that really led me to get more interested in this whole topic, which gets us to today. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Gary and Diane, for both being here. And so, yeah, I am going to just jump right in and ask 
um, if each of you um, with the, the experience and the, the education and the specialties that you both have, if you can explain a little bit what it looks like for parents when and after they receive a prenatal diagnosis and what um, kind of options they're often given. So thank you, Petra. And Gary, is it okay if I start with a little history about prenatal diagnosis? Yes, please. <laughs> so so from my early, thank you, Gary. So from my early experiences with prenatal diagnosis as a new nurse about 30, 35 years ago, um, prenatal diagnosis was uh, an invasive procedure that was completed via an amniocentesis for couples and women who are at high risk for having a baby with um, a, a, an abnormal genetic diagnosis. Uh, at that time, it was common education for the nurses and all of us who were young mothers back then that an amniocentesis is an invasive procedure that incurred risks potentially to both mom and to baby. So there were robust standards of informed consent to ask permission of parents if they were, if they had a genetic um, disposition or genetic family history of, of a baby with some type of genetic abnormality. This is really important to remember the roots of how genetic and screening began because of the nature of prenatal diagnosis being an invasive procedure. Um, today, we, with technology, have advanced to kind of Pandora's box of potentially knowing information about our genetic risk. Earlier and earlier in the pregnancy, through normal venous blood draw access screenings and diagnostic um, testing, but diagnostic testing can still be done by amniocentesis. And you might say, well, why is this important? Well, it's important because elements of informed consent for parents were of the utmost importance 30 years ago with this knowledge. This knowledge, um, just like all knowledge, has potentially um, grave uh, impacts that we're seeing today in, a, in an escalating way. And today, these tests are done through the almost disguise of gender reveal, venous blood draws with normal pregnancy blood draws, about 10 weeks of uh, gestation. Some people report having these tests between eight and 10 weeks of gestation, uh, but, but not most are done around 10 weeks of gestation. This is impactful to the knowledge of the medical community of knowing whether or not a child has the potential, and I'm going to uh, kind of boldly pop out that word potential of a screen, a positive screening test with those gender reveal venous blood draws, because a screening tool is way different than an absolute diagnostic tool. And I'm going to stop there for a minute so that other people can jump into the conversation. And then I would like to go over some elements of informed consent and why that's so important. Does anybody have anything to um, add to clarify that information? So I'll just, no, I'll just build on it a little bit. And and some of the parents I've spoken to, including one just in the past week, um, you know, say that they, you know, they did not understand uh, what 
the test was, you know, offering. They did not understand the risk. But uh, even, in, you know, I've heard some examples where parents did understand what these tests were due and declined the testing and the tests were performed anyway. Uh, you know, and so, uh, you know, it, and not that that happens all of the time, but, um, you know, but you know, the there is a definitely an increased bias towards testing without, as Diane said, uh, you know, an awareness of um, not just the risk of the test, but also kind of the, you know, how valid the test results may or may not be for particular, you know, uh, individuals who may not be high risk to begin with. That, that's so important, Gary. I, I receive ethics consultations from a couple of organizations, the National Catholic Bioethics Center, I screen ethics calls for them. And then I also am on uh, on-call consult for Be Not Afraid and some other um, uh, caring to term uh, organizations. And, and when we're asked to participate or to assist uh, parents and families through this diagnosis, we hear many of the same reports that either uh, parents weren't informed of the risks and benefits of the genetic testing or screening testing. They weren't informed of alternative treatments, which is no treatment to not have the um, tests completed. And I have heard multiple times that people have refused the genetic testing. And yet, because it's pretty much a standard order set with pregnancy blood work, that sometimes those screening tests get thrown into the order sets without the family even knowing that they were actually being done. And this is impactful in many ways. And I think that the medical community uh, sometimes will put the consent for gender reveal and screening blood work in with the general consent for normal care and treatment in the physician's office with OBGYN care. And that kind of hides the, um, the reveal of the intention of these, uh, these tests without full knowledge of parental consent. Medical community is completing these tests in an essence of beneficence, of what they see as beneficence or goodwill to the patient and to the pregnancy and providing inclusive um, studies for the pregnancy. However, we know that with research, and previous genetic diagnoses that the impact of receiving a positive screening or a positive diagnostic test of a, of a, of a newborn child having severe genetic abnormalities is, is traumatic, not only to the pregnancy, but to the mother and to the relationship between the mother and the father. And this is probably the most impactful part that we're trying to about that with the diagnosis or with the screening notification, parents have an implanted uh, effect of trauma of all of their hopes and dreams of that pregnancy being a normal child like many of us have when we're pregnant, we get excited, it's beautiful. And then they receive this bad news without their knowing or without their understanding. Um, and, and that's very problematic. And with those traumatic experiences, um, stress responses that impede the growth and development of the baby, and also, more importantly, impedes that executive decision-making capacity for families to make a decision if, if they're asked to, to abort the child that has this uh, screening abnormality. And I think I'm getting ahead of myself, so I'm going to pause again. That's okay, Diane. I was going to say, um, you 
you are kind of leading into the next question, but before we get there, just Gary, if you have anything to add on to Diane has kind of, um, you know, gotten into the ethics of what care is offered these parents even. So maybe you and even Diane briefly, again, can touch on that before we kind of um, move on to the trauma aspect of this. So, um, you know, I think the, the, the words informed consent, uh, you know, if we reflect on just each of those words in isolation, and Diane kind of hit on this already, but, you know, the word informed means that you get the information that you need to make a decision. And, you know, to Diane's point, you know, not everybody gets the full, you know, including scientific, you know, evidence-based peer-reviewed research on the uh, the physical and emotional effects on mother associated with the choice to carry to term versus the choice to uh, terminate pregnancy, uh, as well as obviously baby. Um, but, you know, all the support systems available to them, they may not get all that information as well. And so that makes it difficult to make an, the informed part. But then the consent part, um, you know, there's there's a phrase that's used in some of those that the, the, the parents are able to make an independent voluntary decision. And uh, as Diane mentioned, you're, and we're going to go into a little bit more, it's like when parents are in a trauma mode, their executive functioning makes it difficult. And so the ability to, to consent to something is impaired. Uh, and so both, you know, so parents oftentimes are, you know, are not getting both the informed part and the consent part. Uh, they're both lacking, uh, which makes it very difficult to, uh, to have a, a, an authentic informed consent opportunity for parents. And, and Gary, that's so important. And I, I wanted to wind um, backwards just a little bit. When I, when I present this in, in a presentation to healthcare professionals, I show a slide that says, we're having a baby, come to our gender reveal. And through, um, through social media, this has become something very popular. It's very exciting, right? People get super excited. They want to know, am I going to have a boy or am I going to have a girl? And it's going to be a surprise for everybody that we love. Come to our house and let's visit. And we'll, we'll share the color of the cakes with the gender reveal. And people are really excited for this and they, they don't understand the impact. And the ethical religious directives that we followed in healthcare and Catholic healthcare for decades included these, these five elements that um, surrounded prenatal diagnosis. And I would like to take a minute to read them. And the first element is that the, the parents and the consenting adults should obtain full disclosure of the intervention, the medical intervention with the risks, the benefits and alternative treatment interventions or non-treatment. So when people receive uh, requests for prenatal screening or diagnosis, parents should be fully uh, informed and they should know the nature of the test or the treatment interventions, the alternative treatments and the risks and benefits of each. And they should also review with the healthcare provider potential consequences of the intervention. So parents should be instructed that if they receive a positive screening or positive diagnostic test, that they will re receive a call from their office and they will be told the results. And parents are not always prepared for this call. The call that comes in to parents will typically sound like, even if a mom say in line at the grocery store or picking up kids from school, hi, Mrs. So-and-so, we just received your prenatal screening and we received positive results for a lethal diagnosis. You need to make an appointment to come to our office immediately so that we can talk about um, your options in continuing the pregnancy. Um, and this, this in and of itself becomes something that's traumatic 
to, to moms when they receive these phone calls. Yeah, and so maybe um, Gary and and um, Diane, uh, maybe now you can discuss how do we approach the issue of prenatal diagnosis from a trauma-informed view and maybe just um, speak to the need for resources for parents to actually connect with? Uh, so, you know, as Diane you know, said, I mean, the whole experience can be very traumatizing for parents. And, you know, just what experts in trauma will, will you know, tell us is, you know, some things that we probably know from our experience. But, you know, one is, you know, we typically have a response that's fight, flight, or freeze uh, response. And so we have to recognize that parents may be in one of those modes. And it's not just like in an instant for a couple minutes. It could be over, a, you know, an extended period of time during the pregnancy. And uh, some of the, the effects of that, that, you know, I think we can be aware of, and Diane, I'm sure we'll be able to elaborate much more than I can on this. But I mean, just as she mentioned earlier, just the loss of executive functioning skills, just you just can't think straight. Um, you know, uh, experts tell us that, you know, oftentimes they lost, feel a loss of connection, especially between the mother and baby, uh, and just a loss of agency or control, uh, because all these things are happening to them, and they don't really know how to control that. And, um, you know, this is an opportunity for us to kind of help them through that trauma by, you know, providing, yes, good information, but not overwhelming them, keeping it simple, um, you know, just, you know, speak to them using, you know, baby uh, and help you know, using language that helps them reconnect with baby. And this is kind of like the V in, in the love approach, the vision value uh, and and work through them to empower them to, you know, move forward and and, and, and extend that support uh to such that they are kind of feeling like they have some control again. It's a love approach. It's a little bit, you know, a, a little bit of variation from how we, we would typically do it, but it's the same basic, you know, approach to really kind of helping empower them and giving them, uh, you know, control back over, you know, how they proceed with their, their, their uh, pregnancy. Although they obviously have some new information about their child that they didn't have before. So thank you. Thank you, Gary. <laughs> that, that is such a, a breath of, truth in in the cases that we hear the impact of trauma. And I think what's really important to tell the medical community and our parents that experience all of this disruption of hopes and dreams for their newborn child uh, is that this impact of prenatal diagnosis being delivered this way is, is a new phenomenon. So the medical community in, in their seeking to do good for the patient isn't recognizing the harms that this is causing. And so there are some very powerful and wonderful new phenomenological studies that look at the lived experience of prenatal diagnosis. And this is where um, qualitative researchers try to develop what are the themes of receiving this type of news. And um, I'm happy to provide those resources for anybody if they're interested, but some of the themes that families are quoting and stating that they experience is that all of their hopes and dreams for the pregnancy are lost and their, their sense of safety is completely disrupted. It's, an, it's, it's a moment of disempowerment for the dad because he can't protect the mom and the baby. So there becomes a marital stress or uh, in, in the pregnancy. And this impact is not something that happens only in that moment. People who experience this intrinsic deep trauma um, 
get stuck there, like, like Gary said, or they fight or flight. Um, and in that, they need assistance and guidance. If the medical community's response to the prenatal screening utilizes purposefully uh, exclamatory language or lethal language that identifies the pregnancy as um, non-compatible with life, with brave lethal anomalies that are not compatible with life, they, that causes an, a bigger infliction of fear and, and pain. And oftentimes this will make people uh, abortion vulnerable who were never ever consider abortion in pregnancy. And this is impactful because it in, indicates that the stress response will make people abortion vulnerable who never in, imagined that they would choose an abortion and when healthcare providers say that our only medical intervention that we can provide for you is this procedure that will end the pregnancy without even calling that a, an abortion, families think that they have no other option. So by following the elements of informed consent, it is essential that healthcare providers do not only provide the parents with options of ending the pregnancy, but providing them with the alternative interventions, which is caring to term, which is watchfully waiting to see if baby surprises, to see if this diagnosis that is a screening test isn't actually a positive diagnostic test. And these distinctions between screening and diagnostic tests are not made either and oftentimes blurred together as being one and the same. This is important because if we notice the timeline of when these screening tests are done, they're done around 10 weeks of gestation. So there's an urgency with the medical community to respond to the parents, to encourage them to end the pregnancy because of the potential for a lethal anomaly. Um, parents who decide to carry the term need that support from their medical uh, team as well. And they often meet resistance and um, shaming. And the shaming comes in all types of ways. But one of the most common uh, shaming responses that medical community provides to parents is, well, you wouldn't want your baby to suffer, would you? You, you want to be a responsible and loving parent, and you wouldn't want your, your child to be born like this. And then that increases the guilt and the um, stress responses in families. So these experiences that are quoted, um, families will report, report that they are in uncharted path, that they don't know which way to turn for help. Social work and social work providers and nurses can help families develop um, a birth plan. Um, we need to instruct families that they are allowed to ask the health care providers for a timeout. And this is a safe, a quality safety initiative in healthcare that has uh, grown in the, in the past 30 years that before surgery, before any procedure, it's permissible to ask for a timeout so that they can, parents and families can process the information, gather all of the information and gather all of the facts and not be coerced into ending the pregnancy if it's something that they um, are, are morally opposed to. I, I remember, Diane, you recently speaking about a mother who said, you mean I can just carry my baby <laughs> naturally? And she was, because that offer, that, that possibility was never even offered to her. And, you know, and you're like, well, yeah, it's kind of the most natural thing, you know, to do. Yeah. yeah, so, right, Gary. And that's the first thing that I say to parents when they call is that your, your baby 
is alive in your womb, in the safety of your womb right now. Your baby is exactly where you, the baby is supposed to be. Um, and so you, you are allowed to take a time out. You are allowed to discern. You are allowed to think and love your baby and get more information. And that's, that's the biggest advice that I give families. Don't feel like you have to make an emergency response. And even though lethal language is utilized, that makes this seem very, very scary. Take a deep breath, be a participant in your care with the healthcare providers and say, I, I need to talk to my husband. A lot of times women are asked to come in and make a decision without their spouse being present. Um, they're allowed to stop and say, I'd like to see my medical records, please, and consult in another consultant physician and get some more opinions. Families are entitled to alternate treatment and caring the term and not making an emergent decision when their life or the life of the baby is not at risk in the moment of the screening test or the diagnostic test is essential to kind of redirect the healthcare providers into focusing on patient family-centered care as opposed to a course of means that that is not telling the entire story of what the family is experiencing. And, and one of the things that, you, you know, you touched on there, but just even just having the, the uh, option and really right to be able to speak with medical professionals that treat children with those conditions. Uh, some of them, you know, after baby's born, some even in utero and understanding what treatment options are potentially available for, for their child. Uh, you know, is, is something that, you know, would seem ordinary <laughs> in most medical situations. It would. And I, I think um, you, you guys have both also, again, skipped a, a bit ahead, um, which is great. Um, the natural flow of the conversation here. Um, and so I just wanted to know what my next question was going to be, how can families advocate for the care that they want? And you've both have given some ideas there, but are, are there some other ways that a family who has received a prenatal diagnosis can advocate for themselves? Are there any general guidelines or any solid steps that you would recommend to families in this situation? The very first recommendation that I would like to make is the dissemination of knowledge. The prenatal screening is a huge business. Uh, 2.8 billion in 2022 projected with another like 9% increase in profiting from prenatal screening and diagnosis for families to understand that the screening and diagnosis process could potentially give them false positives and to be aware and almost to have a game plan. If you're going to consent to prenatal screening and diagnosis to have a game plan of if I receive a call with a positive screening result, that I am going to request more information and I am not going to respond. Uh, and I'm going to respond to the healthcare provider that I will not emergently abort the baby and that I want to have additional information or non-information. And I think if we disseminate that first, then people won't be as shocked when they receive the news. Um, second, after a, a parent and parents receive the news, they have a right for being participants in their care and developing their own trajectory of family and patient-centered care, which would include caring to term 
and getting the information from their care providers that they are requesting. Uh, referrals to maternal fetal medicine doctors sometimes result in, in, in an, a one-sided conversation about ending of the pregnancy. And like Gary recommended to go to pediatricians and neonatal doctors and ask about the trajectory of the, the child's predicted diagnosis and what that would mean to them for preventative care or care at birth. Um, that would be my first recommendation. A lot of women don't have that support, that community of support. And that's why um, receiving this information from Heartbeat International is so important. And then there's organizations that are receiving care coordination training. And I would recommend that uh, parents be uh, referred to the parent um, care coordination training sessions. And we have another, a, a number of options for them. One of the options are courses.benotafraid.net in helping provide psychological, emotional, spiritual, and social support hmm. for families to carry the term. And this like, wow, that, that Diane said a whole lot there. I don't have a whole lot to add to, but a couple little things. So one is, you know, I think parents, if they get a positive test result, have the right to say, I want to understand what this test result actually means, you know, is, you know, what is the percentage that is actually accurate or not? Uh, they have uh, the right to ask for additional testing that's non-invasive in addition, you know, in addition to the option of invasive testing. Um, you know, one thing that, uh, you know, oftentimes a, a genetic or chromosomal disorder, you know, is you can't cure the chromosome disorder, but the real question is what treatments may or may not be needed based on you know, how those, you know, how those, you know, play out with a particular child and what treatment options are available for, for a particular child with a particular condition. Uh, I think all those are important. Uh, another one too is, uh, you know, can I speak to other parents who have a child with this condition uh, and understand how that's going as well? Um, and, you know, and as Diane mentioned, you know, parent care coordinators are are trained to help uh, parents navigate through this journey. And for, for many parents, it's not just a question of one thing. It's, it's, you know, navigating the medical questions, navigating the ethical questions, navigating the parenting questions, you know, what does this impact our family and so forth. And so there's a lot of questions that oftentimes come up for which they were unprepared to even consider or contemplate before the, the test result came back. And, uh, and having, having someone that can walk through that journey with them through all those different kinds of questions is so important. I know at Heartbeat, we always say the most important resource is another person to help somebody on a journey. And I think that is just equally as important for, uh, for uh, parents who receive a prenatal diagnosis. Somebody can walk with them and help them through the journey, help them uh, through you know, being able to articulate what questions they have when they have them and knowing where to turn to to help find answers to those questions uh, along the way. And that is, I think, so important for parents and have access to resources like that, super critical. Absolutely. Thank you so much, um, both of you, for sharing there. And I'm going to add my very own two cents there. I think it's really important for, for families to understand your normal OBGYN is, is not a specialist in those prenatal diagnoses. And so it it is absolutely within your right to want to talk to um, a specialist or get a second opinion or something um, of that nature. But um, yeah, a normal OBGYN, they're, they're not um, 
uh, trained to handle uh, these like very special kinds of, of pregnancies. And, uh, you know, we trust our doctors, I think a lot of times, and that that's where that pressure comes in. Um, We're running a little short on time, but we do have some time left. Could either of you or both of you share um, a little bit where you could see um, how or where can pregnancy help organizations um, step up and help in these prenatal diagnosis situations? Because these are not normal abortion-minded women that that pregnancy help organizations might be more, um, you know, trained or prepared to deal with. So how, how can they step up in these situations? So first off, you know, you know, as Diane mentioned this earlier, but this is a growing trend. So the number of uh, percentage of children with actual prenatal conditions, you know, is, remains, you know, a fairly small percentage, but the number of parents receiving um, prenatal testing is growing rapidly, as Diane mentioned. And along with that is, you know, both true and false positives. And, you know, my experience is that when I start sharing kind of the work that we're doing with almost any crowd of people, someone will raise their hand and say, yeah, I experienced that, <laughs> you know, something like that along the way. Uh, so, I mean, it's 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 almost surprising to me just how high percentage there are of, of people who have a story uh, of some something like this, even if it was a false positive. So the, the numbers are are growing rapidly. I think from pregnancy help centers, recognizing first off that that is, need is out there and growing, and it will probably never be the biggest percentage, but it is is definitely there and definitely need. Um, and then being able to connect them with the, the support resources and information they need. Um, you know, I think we'll talk more about the the uh, the website that has been co-developed by a lot of uh, experts. Uh, called prenataldiagnosis.org that offers some basic uh, and but super important information that parents who receive a diagnosis uh, may find helpful. Uh, and then, you know, being able to walk that journey with parents, or if you feel like uh, the parents' needs are beyond what you have, be able to refer them uh, to a parent care coordinator to help them walk through that journey. And the parent care coordinator is really kind of a, a pregnancy help uh, organization that specializes in uh, and has been trained on on this sort of thing. And for any pregnancy help organization that would like to be able to do this uh, journey with parents better, uh, training is available at uh, benotafraid.net slash training. It's the same training that Diane mentioned earlier. I think the best, the, the, all of that information is so, so valuable, Gary. Um, and I have more limited experience with pregnancy center uh, functioning than all of you. Um, but from the outside, from an acute care kind of perspective and, and how I could imagine pregnancy centers helping is to um, Im- improve like questionnaires of people who are maybe requesting to end a pregnancy if they have a prenatal diagnosis and to explain um, procedures to families. There was an article in the news that I found a little bit disturbing um, because I feel like those elements of informed consent were not provided to a family. Um, And it's important for people to know that if you have a prenatal diagnosis that truly is lethal, like say anencephaly, which most of the babies are born um, and, and they die during the birthing process. When a baby is, and when a mom and a baby can continue the pregnancy in a, in a natural way to its natural end, a baby with anencephaly, um, and you're prepared that the baby might die at birth, people can provide um, 
prayers and blessings and sacramental um, religious ceremonies for the short life of their baby that are so meaningful for the holistic care of the family in those situations. And the violence of ending a pregnancy via an abortion where, say, a, a DNA is occurred and the baby's not born intact because of the nature of the abortion process. And then families don't have the ability to grieve and find to bring closure to the end of the, their life of their, their offspring of their beautiful baby is, is impactful. And that also impacts the trauma in regard to that life. So if we could comfort families to know that sometimes a live birth or a birth when a baby's not expected to live can have a holistic closure that ending the pregnancy too soon might not provide. I think that is so important. And, and Diane, who's just speaking this, it reminds me of the young woman I know uh, who, you know, um, you know, received a positive screening test that, you know, I knew that there's a probability of it being false was high, but it is a possibility. It's true. And so it's important not to place false hope on like, well, it's probably wrong or something like that. Uh, you know, a screening test might be accurate, but it might be not, you know, and so you have to kind of live in the uncertain space, you know, as a, a mutual friend of ours always says that, you know, of you know, dealing with one of two possible options. Um, but in her case, the, the child did have the condition and uh, passed away naturally in her womb, but she had a funeral afterwards. She availed herself to some counseling just in case. And, and you know, um, I think it was, you know, as, as Diane said, I mean, the community was able to come around and support her and her husband through the process uh, and and bring some meaning and you know, to their child's life uh, as well. Those are great tips. Thank you both. And um, I think for um, anybody in the pregnancy help movement who just wants to also understand kind of um, the idea of informed consent, what that reality is for parents, um, and just be more educated about that um, in general, Gary did do a presentation for us at Heartbeats Annual Conference earlier this year. And I know that recording is available, I, I think, through Heartbeat Academy. And Christine can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but that recording is um, available and that has a lot of really good information. And I, I think the more that people in the pregnancy help movement and people who um, work or volunteer at pregnancy help organizations understand the uniqueness of these kinds of situations, um, the the better prepared they can be then to um, help walk with families through that or to connect them with resources um, that can walk with families through this. Um, that is all of the questions that I had for you today. So I'm going to let Christine take over from here. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you all so much. This has been really interesting. Uh, Petra, I do appreciate you bringing up that workshop. I was going to mention that too, because uh, Gary's workshop that he recorded for our conference, it is available to view through Heartbeat Academy. And I will post a direct link to that uh, in the show notes. So check that out. Um, it's very informative. It's very helpful to um, watch a full presentation, maybe watch it with your staff if you're a pregnancy center and uh, you just want everybody to have a good comprehensive understanding of informed consent uh, when facing a prenatal diagnosis. Because as we talked about, it's uh, very important. There's a lot of different angles to these types of situations that people don't think about until they're in that 
um, you know, it feels like this big crisis, but we have help available. Um, so we're going to talk more about that help that's available in the next episode uh, in this mini series. We'll talk about prenataldiagnosis.org. Uh, it's a wonderful resource for parents, for those who are walking with parents, such as pregnancy help organizations, um, even church leaders. It's just, it's something that people need to know exists. So uh, we also mentioned Be Not Afraid in their training, and I can um, post some links in the show notes as well for those other resources. But um, stay tuned by subscribing to our podcast so that you don't miss that episode or any of our other upcoming episodes. And with that, I thank you for listening to this episode of the Pregnancy Help Podcast.